Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening. Welcome to Critical Witness. I'm Phil, and I'm here with uh, Dan, as usual, and Andy Bannister. And we've got about an hour with Andy, so we're going to go straight into <coughs> our conversation without any uh, little blurb at the start. So, hi, Andy. Great to... Hey, Phil. Meet. Hey, Dan. How you doing? Happy <laughs> birthday, Dan. Birthday you've got happy birthday behind you, so... <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the shirt. This, this yeah, shirt is, is, it's a lovely shirt. It's a lovely blends in with the birthday banner. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love, I love a good one. I've read about this that lockdown sort of goes makes people's heads go funny and they start, you know, wearing leathery shirts and there are other things. <laughs> it seems to be the case. <laughs> I, just, I need something to bring a little joy to my life. Absolutely, um, oh, and, and a bit, a bit of colour. Yeah, so. Um, I'm looking forward to getting on the train with it when I'm back to work. Um, Are you going to the train with that shirt? Absolutely, shorts, shorts, trainers, and a and a, and a nice a nice bright Hawaiian shirt. That's one of my yeah. favorite favorite Flip-flops. ways. Flip flops with socks. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, a true yeah. Christian, just like <laughs> Jesus would. <laughs> I love how this is started. We're, we're, we're already there. What would Jesus um, wear? What well, well, Jesus? Um, I, I know. I was going to ask. Let's let's get straight into this. Straight, so straight in. You 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 have written a book about uh, Muslims and Christians. So do I, I guess before we get started into that, uh, did you see recently? I think it was it was this week that a Malaysian Christian won a case um, in in the Malaysian High Court, basically saying she she won the right to to refer to God as mm. Allah, yes. as a Christian. That's my understanding that that quite a few uh, Arabic Christians around the world do use uh, the term Allah to refer to yep. God uh, in in the Christian sense. Um, so th- does that does that does that mean actually we do? You know, what, what what does that mean? Is it okay for Christians you think to refer to uh, yeah. to God as Allah, or does that infer uh, muddy the waters yeah. on the gods? You know, is it oh, is the same great God? Question, great question. So yeah, great, you're right about the timing on the Malaysian piece and. Uh, and I was encouraged to see that because for a long time, you know, Malaysian Christians have been fighting that. And their argument and the argument of other um, sort of Christians in that region has been that actually Christians were using the word Allah to refer to, to God. Um, you know, if in some sense before Islam came along, actually, it's just the in what there is a sense in which it is just the Arabic word word for God. By the time you get to the Quran, it sort of now begins becoming more of God's proper name within the Quran. But certainly, I think before Islam. It was a kind of generic term. So why the heck shouldn't Christians be able to, to use it? And in a sense, I think in terms of Muslim-Christian dialogue, the whole argument of my my book, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God, is not so much about what word we use to refer to God. It's about the question of who is God and what is God like? Because God is one of those words that we throw around quite sloppily. You know, we do it we do it here in the West. You know, you say as a Christian, I believe in God. Your atheist friend says, oh, I, don't, I don't believe in God. But we're assuming that we're referring to the same thing. And one of the things I say in the book is just we need to stop and pause and say, OK, when you talk about God, what do we mean? And so when our Muslim friends use the word Allah or uh, when Christians and you know Arabic speakers use the same term or choose a different term. And we as British you know, English speakers use the word God. What do we mean? Um, and now I find in Muslim Christian dialogue, I tend to stay away from the term Allah for obvious reasons. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an English speaker, but also I think it does help bring clarity. And so one of the things in the book. I do a little bit is I tend to I tend to when I talk about the God of the Bible, I tend to use God's biblical name, Yahweh, from the Old Testament there. And when I talk about the God of the Quran, I tend to use Allah, just so we make people pause and think about the fact that actually we potentially have two different characters and two different entities here. And if we end up concluding they're the same, sure, so be it. But don't assume they're the same. I think that's perhaps a big starting point of the book is we have to ask what we mean by the words that we use. All right, well, let's kind of start there then. Uh, so just a, a brief overview 
um, would be interesting of Yahweh, Allah. Is there, is, is it, is, I guess you've written a book on it. It's not as straightforward as just like, maybe we should define the Christian God very quickly before we go yeah. into Islam. If, if you'd be happy oh, to do yeah. that. What I'll do, Philip, is okay. I'll let me just back up slightly before there. One of, one of the things I do in the book is I offer a framework um, in the book to help people you know, talk about different religions and also talk about no religion, you know, framework so we can actually begin sort of dialoguing together. And the framework I, I offer, which is not unique to me, I've, I've modified it from others, is to say, look, there are four great questions, four, four great worldview questions that we can use as, Christian, as, as, as in dialogue. We can ask, you know, the person we're talking with, um, do you think there's a God? And if so, what is God like? We can ask, what do you think human beings are? Uh, we can ask the question, what do you think has gone wrong with the world? And we can ask the question, what's the solution to that? And that's a great fourfold talking point for if Christians and Muslims are dialoguing or if Christians and atheists are dialoguing. Um, and therefore, in the book, what I then do in terms of the Muslim piece of this is start with that first of those worldview questions. OK, you know, is there a God? And of course, Muslims and Christians say, yes, absolutely. We believe there's a God. OK, what is God like? And then I go on in the in the fourth chapter of the book. Um, to say that, look, I think the God of the Bible, there are many ways we could define God. Um, but if I think if you look at themes that run through our Old and New Testaments and are pretty universal across 1400 years of biblical scripture, of biblical texts, we see that the God of the Bible is a God who's relational. Um, he's a God who walks and talks with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's a God who, you know, appears to Moses at the burning bush. He's a God who uh, is there present in the wilderness with his people in the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. He's a God who turns up time and time again. He's a God who walks and talks with uh, uh, redeemed humanity in the new heavens and the new earth. And he's the God who stepped into history in the person of Jesus. So he's a God who's relational. He's a God who can be known. Again, that's the theme that runs through Old and New Testament. Again, summarize, you know, really reaches at zenith in the person of Jesus, that the, the whole invitation of the Bible is not just to know about God, but to know God. He's a God who reveals himself, not just his commands. He's also a God who is holy. That's a theme that runs through the whole of the Bible. It, you know, God, God is, is too holy to even look on, on evil. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just merely sort of disapprove of, of human sin. He's a God who is so holy and so good and so righteous and so pure um, that he can't even tolerate uh, sin in his presence. Uh, fourthly, he's a God who is love. Um, the Bible stresses that again in both Old and New Testaments, that God is in his very, the very heart of his identity, a God who is love. And then fifthly, I'm going to sneeze in a minute, by the way, just to warn you. <laughs> just to make it dramatic. Come roll. That's the fifth one, is it? The fifth one is, yes, God is God, it's suffered. Um, and I think we see that in both Old and New Testaments, actually, that God is grieved by human sin. In the Old Testament, he's not. He doesn't just merely disapprove. It actually breaks the heart of, of God. I think it's the kind of language the New Testament, Old Testament, almost uses in places. And in the New Testament, we see that in the person of Christ. So relational, knowable, holy, love, suffered. And then basically, what we do is we in the book then turn over to the Quran and explore each of those themes and see how actually the Quran outrightly rejects or ignores or sidelines all all five of them. They are really not part of the Quran's picture of Allah. In fact, quite the opposite uh, is the case. So by that, so is it actively against? Uh, and from, from what I've seen in my interactions with the Quran, and it, it's not just, it's, it's their prayers, it's down very, even down to their daily prayers that it completely undermines the Christian concept of God. Um, or is it just Jesus in the, in the daily prayers well, that they undermine? Yeah, a couple, yeah, it's a Christian film. I mean, here's the thing. Sometimes... What's been interesting is, as I've, you know, as word has got out on social media, the book is out, it came a week ago, so we're still fairly kind of hot off the press, you know, it's watching some reception. And one of the things that I've been intrigued by is a number of Christians on social media who will jump on to my, you know, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter post about the book and, you know, seeing the title will go just, well, no, you know, it's obvious, isn't it? The answer is no, to which I often like to say, well, yeah, that's a perfectly acceptable one word answer. But what do you say to someone who says, why is it no? And then often Christians go straight for Jesus. Well, the answer is Jesus. It's like the old Sunday school answer. You know, what's, what's you know, little boy who was asked, you know, what's grey has a, a bushy tail and eats nuts? Well, it sounds like a squirrel to me, but I know the answer is Jesus. Um, <laughs> Jesus is often the right answer. But we sometimes get there too quickly. And I always say to people on this issue, if we say the defining difference between Christians and Muslims is Jesus, that's great. But we then end up, we risk disenfranchising our Muslim friends, our, our Jewish friends. I don't think as Christians we want to be saying, oh, our Jewish friends don't worship the same God as we do. Or the gods, you know, the, the, the God that Abraham or Moses or Isaac 
uh, kind of worshipped. Um, you know, somehow wasn't the God of the Bible. But if you grabbed Abraham, you know, sort of 1500 years, B, 2000 years BC, whatever, and gone, hey, do you know the name Jesus? He'd gone, who? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the Old Testament to go all those characteristics, a God who is, is, who is relational, knowable, love, uh, you know, holy, love, has suffered. They are all themes that are there in the Old Testament. They're all themes that are, those are Old Testament figures would have understood and recognized. They're all themes that are central to Judaism. And they are all themes that are seen there most clearly in Jesus. Because Jesus is what is what God looks like, the God of the Old Testament looks like when he steps into history. And so Jesus is the end of the story. I think sometimes as Christians, you need to wind the clock back a little bit. And this is also helpful with, with Muslims, because Muslims sometimes have a tendency to try and sort of, you know, sort of sideline Jesus and go, well, you know, uh, yeah, but, you know, the, the, the Trinity, blah, 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 whatever. And I go, well, just let's put Jesus to one side for a moment. And let's talk about the Old Testament, where Muslims actually don't often go. And let's look at the characteristic of God there. And what's also fascinating is the Quran often borrows stories from the Old Testament and deeply subverts them in the process. To give you just one very quick example, it's a beautiful story, amazing story in Genesis 15. Amazing story of God's relationality, where God is formed is forming a covenant with Abraham, this, this binding promise to, to you know to, to commit to Abraham and his and his family. And they do what's called a covenant cutting ceremony. That's what you do did in the ancient Near East. And when you form a covenant, both parties would take some animals, would cut them in two, lay the pieces aside each other, and both parties would walk through the line of cut animals. And the symbolism simply said, if we if I, if one either of us breaks the terms of this agreement, may we be like these animals literally torn apart. And it's amazing that you read that in Genesis 15. Abraham doesn't do the walking. God, in the shape of a burning brazier, you know, in uh, goes through between those two uh, those two lines of cut pieces. God basically saying, you know, I will commit myself to this covenant cutting ceremony. I will be the one who bears the consequences of what happens if this is broken. And of course, that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and the New Testament. Well, the Quran takes this story in Genesis 15, this amazing story of God relating and making himself known in this incredible way to Abraham. The Quran borrows it seven, you know, 700 years later, uh, well, more than 700 years later, actually, over a thousand years later, doesn't know what to do with it and turns it in the Quran. It's a bizarre little story about God, about Allah telling Abraham to cut some animals in two, put the pieces on different mountains, and then sort of, uh, you know, say a prayer, and, God and Allah will rejoin the pieces and raise the creatures from the dead. And it's a bizarre little parable, parable, parable about resurrection. And the Quran just totally misses the whole point of that story. And in retelling, it doesn't just mangle the story, mangle the theology. It also loses that incredible insight into, into who God is and uh, and how he relates to human beings. And the Quran does that time and time again, particularly with the Old Testament material. That's re- really interesting because I mean, we share a lot of prophets so when you're talking about Jews just then, you're saying, well, you've got Abraham, Moses, yeah. and all the prophets. And so we'd be very wary of jumping straight to Jesus and saying uh, Jews and Christians worship a different God. But just playing the, the ignorant <laughs> one here, it, it, Muslims make the same argument that they share the prophets, yeah. that Abraham was a Muslim, that Moses, all, this all of them would be Muslims. So just sort of to dig into that further, not just Genesis 15, how how then would you make a different argument if you're talking to a Jew than from a Muslim? Well, well, a couple of things. Hang on. If I was talking to a Jewish friend, obviously, I'd start with the Old Testament and we, I'd say, let's have a look at the nature and the character of God. Let's look at some of the many of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament and let's talk about how they relate to and point forward to Jesus. And I have that conversation with Muslims. And this is a crucial thing, actually, Phil, um, that I go into in the in the eighth chapter of the book is that one of the big problems that has confused Christian Muslim dialogue uh, arguably, arguably for centuries actually is that Christians have come along and we've looked at the Quran and we've gone oh it talks about Abraham it talks about Isaac it talks about you know Moses and so on therefore in some sense it's sort of cut from the same cloth as the Old Testament in your language there we share these things in common but there's been a lot more recent work done on this. In fact, the book that really has made massive inroads into this in the last few years is Mark Dury's book, The Quran and Its Biblical Reflexes. And Mark's interesting because he's a Quranic expert and he's a linguist. And he talks about the fact in, in linguistics, um, there's a big difference between when, when things are borrowed or things are in, inherited. 
Um, so in language, sometimes we, the words are inherited. So, for example, English, you know, is a Romance, is one of the European languages. It's ultimately a Romance language. It goes back into French and uh, and into into the other European languages, and obviously the Anglo-Saxon there as well. But you can trace the heritage back. We have lots of words in English that have been inherited, you know, through things like French and, and Latin and so forth. There's the continuity. We also have words that English has borrowed. Take the word juggernaut, for example. The word juggernaut was originally the name of a Hindu deity and uh, who was worshipped by, by, by the devotees building this, these great kind of wooden chariots and rolling them over devotees and crushing people to death. And it was a Hindu deity, I think, called Jagannatha. And that eventually got borrowed, you know, through the Brits' involvement in India and came to the modern word juggernauts. But the modern word juggernauts, you know, has no connection to, to Hindu worship. When you say, you know, uh, the next podcast recording came down the road like a juggernaut, you're not making any, any implications about planning to start, you know, crushing your guests on the wheeled wooden chariots or a desire to embrace forms of Hinduism, because that word's been borrowed with no regard to its context. And borrowing destroys context. Inheritance brings context over. And Mark's argument and others is when you look at the Quran, what we have is borrowing. Quran has picked up the name of Abraham. It's picked up the name of Moses and some of the stories that were sloshing around in you know, the Middle East of Muhammad's day. Um, and it's borrowed them, inserted them into an entirely new context and then lost the meaning in the process. And so it's not that the Quran is an Abrahamic, Islam is an Abrahamic faith or Muslims and, and Christians share these prophets in common. Rather, we have a, a very, very different Arabian faith that's borrowed a few words and sort of inserted them into places but we get we get completely confused, discombobulated if we therefore think, OK, there's some sort of theological connection here. And uh, so I map that out in the eighth chapter of the book, try and take Mark's work and the work of others and, and popularize that so it can be it can be seen. And so, yeah, I think many scholars now of, of the history of religions would say it's the term Abrahamic faiths is not a helpful one. Um, treat Islam as a, as, a, as a unique creation in its own context and treat Judaism and Christianity certainly as sister religions um, but don't jam the three together it just confuses everything they, they also do it with jesus as well don't they with regards to you know the use of uh you know uh inf the infancy gospel of thomas yeah. um and other examples as well of, of, of mm -hmm. pseudo gospels and pseudo books that were sort of around the the arab peninsula um yeah so yeah that's that's, a, that's an interesting distinction i think because like you said I, I had that in my sort of notes about how there is this um assumption there's this sort of shared genealogy and, and heritage yes. because of these of these terms yeah. that we share in common like the adam you know it goes all the way it talks about adam you know adam as well uh, abraham moses you know um so it, it feels like we have something in common um but uh, but like from what you've said, um, you know, that difference between borrowing and inheriting is actually a really important distinction. It's a crucial what, one, Dan, crucial, yeah. So what, what I'd be interested in, I guess what would be helpful is, do you, what what is the best, what's the best case for someone that you would come up against, um, the best case for um, Allah and Yahweh really being the same deity, that that, um, that Christians and Muslims are, are sort of worshipping the same, the same yeah. God? I found a really interesting quote from uh, it was Pope Gregory uh, from the 12th yeah. century, who was writing to um, King Azir, uh, who is the Islamic uh, ruler of Mauritania, and and he and and he he talks about when he's speaking yeah. to him, he very much says that we are uh, we believe and confess in one God, although in a different way, uh, and praise and worship Him daily as the Creator of all ages and the ruler of this world. You know, so that was it's not something modern. There's clearly, you know, like throughout yeah. history, there have been uh, Christians okay. and Muslims who have thought, actually, no, we do it in different ways, but we're really worshiping the same God, just did it through through yeah. different uh, motions. Exactly. No, there's so much in that in that in that question, um, Dan. So let me just sort of try and shed a a little bit of light if I. If I can, just a couple of things. One, one thing on borrowing and inheritance, and then I'll, I'll angle into your piece there. Just a, another illustration, I think, because this is so crucial, I think, to understanding what's going on with Islam and Christianity and, and Judah. The other analogy I use in the book, one of my my favourite buildings in the UK is York Minster. If anyone's ever listening to this, ever been to York Minster, you'll know, you'll know it's just this gorgeous, gorgeous cathedral. If you've never been there, Google it, and you know you can find you know, wonderful pictures uh, online. 
and uh, you know virtual reality tours and things. And York Minster is an amazing building because it's a medieval cathedral, but it's built out of what was before. If you go back down through the uh, if you go down through the layers, and in fact you can go to York Minster when it's open after COVID and do the do the what's, you do the what's called the Uncroft tour, and they'll take you down through the foundations. And as you go down through the layers of history beneath York Minster, below the medieval cathedral, is a Norman uh, church. The Norman church is built up of a Saxon church and you can actually see how the how the how the three grew the two grew out of the earlier ones and actually i think on the orkminster website they've got some fascinating diagrams and so forth showing you how you know the saxon church effectively uh you know is is turned into a norman church and then a medieval cathedral one has inherited from the other but go right down to the basement and York Minster was originally built on top of a Roman uh, military installation. It was a Roman military barracks. And when the first church builders of the Saxon church built their first church, they actually took a lot of the old Roman stone and used it in the foundations. In fact, at one point in the, found in the foundations of York Minster, there's a pagan Roman uh, altar turned sideways and jammed into the wall because it's a great bit of foundation rubble. And I say in the book, what's the difference between the Roman layer of York Minster and the other three? Well, the other three are all connected they all in they all inherit from each other the, the norman church inherited from the saxon church the medieval cathedral inherited from the other two there is no continuity with the roman bits they're just bits of foundation stone that were useful to the builders and i think that's going on with the quran there's lots of bits of christian and jewish theology jammed in there um because it worked pretty well like jesus is the case in point he doesn't really fit in the quran we may talk about this in a few minutes you know he stands out he doesn't really work in quranic theology but Muhammad kind of picked him up a bit like a bit of roman stone jammed it in because there were some good stories there but he sort of brought you push him to his logical conclusion he breaks the system now on the, on, when you come to your question though about uh about the best case for the same god i think what you end up having to do you have to end up having a discussion around how big do the differences have to get for it to be different rather than the same and i talk about this in the book actually the book i offer a number of analogies about difference for example you know i might I, I talk in the book about the fact how my wife and i have vastly different uh understandings of you know the uh the acting abilities of Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, she thinks he's a total genius and, and, and the best thing, you know, in Hollywood history. I think he's a total hack who, quite frankly, you know, I can't believe he could have managed to cling to a flipping piece of wood at the end of that movie. Um, <laughs> you've heard us talk. You've heard no, us talk. Sorry, right. I have to stop you there. You're you're just wrong. Like I disagree with me. You like it. Your wife is right. Your wife is hundred percent. Oh, there we right. go. Well, we just no, if you heard us talk about DiCaprio, you would go. Well, you talk about different people because you're at least talking about this guy who can't act and he's annoying. And, you know, I just want to throw things at him in every movie. And she thinks he's wonderful and worships granny walks on and all this other stuff. But it's clearly the same person. So you can have quite different understandings of somebody and it'd be the same person. But then we take it a little bit further on. We might talk about the U.S. president. and We might have a discussion about about politics. And, you know, you, we might talk about who we think is the president of the USA. And you might say you think it's Joe Biden. And I, might, I say I might think it's Joseph, Joseph Stalin. Um, quite important difference there, I might suggest, between those two gentlemen as to, you know, and we agree about the office. We agree as one president, but we agree, disagree profoundly about who that president is. Or we might use a more down to earth, a modern example. Maybe as we talk through the show, uh, it turns out that we both got a friend uh, called, uh, called Justin, you know, who lives in London. And we thought, oh, it must be the same, the same friend, obviously, because there's only so many sort of Christians called Justin in London. And it turns out my friend called Justin runs a runs a popular podcast and, you know, is kind of rather short and going bald on top and got a bad sense of humor, all these other things. If Justin Briley does eventually listen to this, it would be quite funny. And um, it turns out, you're on, on the hand, your friend, uh, Justin, is a committed atheist. He's six foot tall. He loves basketball. He's got a shock of hair. You know, it gets more and more different. And at what point do we conclude that we're talking about vastly different people? And so I've given you there three possibilities, I think, for how we can understand difference and similarity. And the debate is when it comes to the God of the Bible. I <laughs> just seen the quote that's coming there on the question mark. That's great. Dan Shirk. Um, then the question is, where on that spectrum of difference? Are we just a couple of minor differences? Is it actually perhaps we agree about the office of, you know, yes, God is the one who's the creator and of all things and ruler of all things, but who that God is is vastly different. Or are we actually looking at mistaken identity? And the funny thing is when I set, set out engaging with Muslims 25 years ago, I, I was actually very much at the, of course they're the same. They're just the same with a few minor differences. And then over the years, as I dug more deeply into Quranic theology, realizing 
there are huge differences here. And actually, as I researched the book, I've been lecturing on this for years, but as I researched the book and really did the deep dive into the Quran, I was like, oh, man, these go deeper than I realized. Um, and I think, again, we get blindsided. And with all due respect to the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the our, histor our histor historical pope that you mentioned there, I think historically, I think a lot of Christians firstly tended to assume that Islam was a Christian heresy. You can find early a lot of early Christian writers thinking that. It's, it's like a Christological heresy and probably assuming, well, when they talk about God, they obviously mean the same God that we're talking about. And all I'm saying in the book is just stop. When we talk to when Muslims and Christians talk to one another, let's ask each other. When you say God, who do you mean? Tell me what you mean by God. Tell me who. Tell me about the God that you believe in, and I'll tell you about the God that I believe in, and we'll see uh, where we where we end up. Um, it's really an, the book is really an encouragement to just do the hard work of filling in the detail on what we mean by words. So is this so? Is that part of the reason? Is, is this sort of common confusion? Um, Part of the reason that motivate actually motivated you to write the book, because you know it is, it is quite common. I mean, is that is that one of the sort of primary motivations? Trying yeah, to... there's a couple of things. Yeah, good question, Dan. There's a couple of reasons I um I kind of um I kind of wrote this beast. I mean, one one is exactly that. I I actually started the book quite personally to talk about you know when I, I grew up in London, a uh, very multicultural city, had lots of friends of different faiths. One of my close friends at, at high school was a Muslim, and back then as a teenager, I kind of assumed I think you know we were largely the same. I think if you'd asked you'd have asked me, and I'd have gone, well, you know, I go to church. My friend Ahmad goes to the mosque. I read the Bible. He reads the Quran. He has an Imam. I have a minister. I follow Jesus. He follows Muhammad. And if you're not careful, you just end up sort of putting these columns side by side, and you assume that it's basically the same thing with interchangeable names. And then it was actually when I began going up the Speaker's Corner in London and doing a lot of dialogues and, and debates, you know, with Muslim friends there at Speaker's Corner and going, man, these guys are actually quite different. And I knew they were different because they challenged me. They didn't think it was the same faith. They thought I was demonstrably wrong and had a totally corrupt view of God. And I needed to, to, to return to what they saw as the one true faith, which was interesting. Um, so that was really Muslims opened my eyes to that. And then on the other hand, it was as I began doing a lot more sort of public kind of speaking like I do now, discovering, as, as you said, this belief is is kind of everywhere. It's very, very common. Um, I thought, oh, gosh, someone needs to sort of talk about this. And then finally, the last piece on writing the book was, I think, about 2015. Uh, I was in Canada at the time, and a friend in Chicago rang me up to ask me to come do a public talk on this because a professor at Wheaton College, large, well-known American seminary, Bible college, had sort of caused lots of controversy by coming out and saying she thought it was the same God. And my friend, and my friend KJ said, hey, would you come and do a public lecture in Chicago? Um, explaining why you think it isn't because he knew my position and i remember saying to him what well, how many are you going to get I mean, is really people interested in this he went oh we might get 100 or so and we actually got about 600 and i opened my eyes about man people are interested and since then whenever i've spoken at conferences particularly there's like breakouts or you know sort of workshops and i offer this as one of the options it's always the biggest people always gravitate uh kind of to it because i think it just opens up so many fascinating sort of sub questions really so that's the journey that it's that, that, that i'm on um with it really so do you, is this is this belief sort of common amongst muslims as well so i know a lot of christians who who would uh, you know uh would, would hold would hold this belief but is this quite common among muslims as well i mean because the only group i've encountered who explicitly state this i think are the Ahmadiyyas, um who 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 speak a lot more about us you know it's more of a difference about jesus but ultimately we're we're worshiping the same the, the same person um yeah so i'm just interested do you encounter many muslims who actually think this yeah well i'm glad you sort of brought our, our, up our Ahmadiyya friends i've actually in 25 years of dialoguing with, with muslims you know sunni and shiite and every sort of sect under the sun i think there is a variation actually sometimes even within the same tradition you know i've come across you know sort of uh you know, sunnis who are by far the biggest sect of islam sunni friends who who have lent more towards it's the you know it's the same god but you christians have got a slightly bit of confusion we need to sort you out on um but i've also come across you know muslims who turn around and basically say you know christians are basically polytheists you know the, the classic you know you guys believe in three gods because of the trinity and of course push that only slightly down the track and you've got muslims are therefore in the different and they are the different god category you know if, if 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 they are accusing us christians of worshiping three gods then clearly we're not worshiping the same god that they are so it's interesting there is that variation within islam and i find what fascinating is is not many people are aware of that when i meet christians who are more at the kind of same god ends who get a bit nervous about this kind of conversation i sometimes like to lead with we do know there are many many muslims out there who would agree with me that it's not the same god 
um, I, you know, because Christians include, believe that God, Jesus belongs to the identity of God. One, one other thing I just want to stress, that we may get to it again later, but I just want to pop it at this point as well. I just want to be very clear that my answer in the book to the question, I don't believe in one word answers, but if I was giving a one word answer, I'm probably about 90% no and 10% yes. Because where I do end up in the book is saying, although the God of the Quran is not the same as the God of the Bible, because, because, because I think that's categorically clear, I do meet many Muslims who tell me they believe in God of love, who are drawn to a relationship with, with God. I've had many conversations with Muslims who yearn for something more in their relationship with God. Argue the, arguably Sufism, the mystical strand of Islam, arose because of that yearning. And enough, I've encountered enough Muslims of that perspective over the years that leads me as a Christian to somewhere like, say, Acts 17 in the, in the New Testament, where you know, Paul is walking around Athens, looking at all the idols and the statues, comes across the altar to the unknown God, um, which we've discovered, archaeologists have discovered examples of altars to unknown gods dating from that period in that part of the world. And rather than go off on some you know, great polemic about, uh, about idolatry, Paul bridges off it. Paul preaches there to the Athenians and says, hey, you know, you're worshipping this God that's unknown. Let me tell you who it is. And with Muslims, I found with some Muslims has been that right moment where it's the ability to go, look, you know, I agree with you that God is a God of love. I completely agree. I, I agree with you that we are designed for a relationship with God, not just knowing his commands and, and obeying him at a distance, never to know anything more. But the God you are describing and being drawn to, I don't think is the God of the Quran. With all due respect, come on home to the God of the Bible. And of course, being an evangelist, that's the end of the book. I end with this great cry, come on home. Um, if you are someone who is in that in that position. Um, so I want to be very careful. I'm not, I'm not a categorical no under every circumstance. There are some Muslims I think who really are yearning for the God of the, uh, of the Bible, the, the real God, not the, not the caricature that the Quran has. Hi there. This is Phil Dunkoff. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do uh, subscribe, share the episode and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. So, so how far would you go with that? I mean, would you, would you, and a little bit off top, but, but would you push that as sort of in, in sort of inclusivism in, in the sense that you have some Muslims who claim to be worshipping Allah, but are actually really projecting that worship at Christ or, or, or Yahweh? Or would that, would that be something you would be uncomfortable with? I don't think I'd go, I, I don't think I'd go that far so much as I would bridge build. I'm a great believer in, in, in bridge building and whatever, whoever you're talking to, if you're talking to an atheist or a Hindu or a Muslim or whoever, try and find the common ground and try and look for that place where God is at work in them. You know, that famous quote from, from Augustine, you know, the early church father, that, you know, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And I think that is a kind of lived experience for many. So you can see where that's going on. And not so much say, oh, you're okay where you are, because that's the kind of universalism piece or the inclusivism. We go, oh, great. Well, you're worshipping the God of the Bible. You're fine where you are. Paul doesn't do that to the Athenians. He doesn't go, oh, you're worshipping the God of the Bible. Fantastic. Let's go. Uh, let's go have a, you know, an Uzo. Um, he wouldn't do that anyway. He's Jewish. But um, <laughs> he basically says, let me you're tell you who that is. <laughs> yeah. And he preaches Christ. And I think that's what we do as Christians is to go, yeah, you've seen something that's good and right and true and as christians we don't need to be afraid if our muslim friend our hindu friend our buddhist friend our atheist friend has grasped hold of something that is true because truth is truth is truth is is truth um but again it's drawing them it's drawing them to jesus and oz guinness you know one and christian writer and, and and you know sort of friend over the years there's a lovely line that oz uses on this where he says but there's only one way to god and that's through jesus but there are as many ways to jesus as there are people who come and, you know, if somebody finds their way to Jesus, you know, sort of through exploring the mystical end of Islam, that, you know, they read the Quran, they discover Jesus there, they find him fascinating, that motivates them to, to read the Gospels, find out more, and they finally come to the point of going, oh, gosh, he's Lord and Christ. I need to now, you know, bow my knee and become a follower. Fantastic. And I, I, know, I know one or two of those. Um, if, I mean, so I'm very, very, but in fact, I've got a whole collection of friends who've come to Christ through very strange routes. But they always come to Christ just by different means.
So do you think there's a disconnect then? Because I, I mean, I've seen signs of um, Muslims on the high street where they're trying to draw in conversation, and oftentimes it's um, they will very clearly emphasise the Christian Jewish prophets and really hone in on the fact that these these guys were actually Muslims. <laughs> but then yes. you you've also got the person that you're just talking about those those who are seeking a god of love seeking a relationship mm. with god would use the term i love allah or the phrase so is there a slight disconnect do you think those who are sort of on the more polemical apologist front of islam are utilizing these similarities to get a foot in and then those who are just searching for god are more inclined to this, the, the the similarities are more about who God is, whereas the apologist, it's surface level <laughs> similarities. Yeah. Um, it's just... yeah, I, yeah, it's a great question, Phil, and I think you're probably right, actually. That I think, look, you know, when you encounter somebody who's an honest speaker, it's just fantastic. It's such an exciting, those are exciting conversations, whether they are, you know, Muslim or Christian or atheist. Or ever. I mean, the last few weeks, I've had you know two or three quite you know exciting conversations with with atheist sort of folks who are on that verge of that seeking position, and it's just a thrill to just see God doing something. And they're not there by a long way, but they're seeing something, and I think there we engage and uh, and draw and point people towards Christ as best we can. The Muslim say apologists and polemics end of things absolutely i think there's a couple of things going on there's obviously that attempt to kind of they're trying to build bridges and go hey look these guys were, were, were muslims and then i think the, the obvious thing to do i've always done is to go okay well can you sort of tell me what the, the, the quran says about the ministry of these folks and the answer is usually virtually nil um so to go if we want to actually find out much about the life of these folks you know we need to go to the bible and actually use that as a way into the bible and i love it when Muslims mention the prophets they go well let's look at them shall we let's go and you know, if you want to sort, if you want to understand the story of um you know, Moses. I mean, the Quran alludes to a few things, but let's get the book of Exodus. Let's do a Bible study and to go, you know, let's subvert the rules of the game. But the, of course, the example par excellence is Jesus, because I've I've occasionally come across Muslims using Jesus as the gold standard and wearing T-shirts saying, you know, I love Jesus or, you know, Muslims worship, love Jesus too, kind of thing. And the, the point I, I always like to make there, and I've got a whole chapter in the book on this, is that Jesus, the problem for them is that Jesus isn't digestible. So the Quran has kind of borrowed Jesus um and stuck him in there but the problem is he doesn't fit and so the, the the jesus of the quran you know he stands head and shoulders above every prophet despite the fact that the quran says there's no distinctions between them uh, you know his virgin birth what the heck is going on with that he's the only prophet in the quran born of a virgin there's these two great long virgin birth stories in, in the quran the quran is uh, fascinated by the virgin birth you know what is going on there he's uh, the only prophet in the quran who's these kind of exalted titles he's the he's the messiah He's a word from God. He's a spirit from God. He does these amazing miracles that no other Quran prophet comes anywhere near. And uh, the Quran hints at a role for him on the day of judgment that the Hadith then expands. And there's this whole, you know, narrative, this whole eschatology developed in early Islam, which has Jesus coming back at the end of time and, you know, fighting the Antichrist, doing all kinds of spectacular things. I always say to Muslims, what the heck is going on with Jesus? He doesn't fit. He just doesn't fit. It's like my my son is like five. He's just about got this right now. You know, up until about a year or so ago, my son's approach to doing jigsaw puzzles was to take a piece and just pound it hard enough so it kind of fitted in the hole. And it feels like the Quran has done this with Jesus, or to use an analogy, I have a lot of fun with in the book. You know, the Quranic Jesus feels rather like somebody's taken, say, Gandalf, Lord of the Rings, and inserted Gandalf into Pride and Prejudice. Uh, you know, Jane Austen. It just just doesn't work. And Jesus just doesn't work in the Quran. He doesn't fit. He's like far too big for his Quranic boots. And mm. I just say to Muslims, because that's not where he belongs. That's not his natural habitat. You need to come to the Gospels where all of these things make sense. You understand why he does the miracles he does. You understand why he has the titles that he does. You understand why he had the, the dramatic birth. And, of course, we understand you know, why he's got this incredible role at the end of history because he is mm. a mere prophet. But it's almost like, yeah, the Quran has swallowed more than it can chew and choked on Jesus, which is quite quite a fun image when you think about it. <laughs> That's a really fun image. Uh, Slam Moran in the chat's just been pointing out that there's also talking about the uh, oh, yes. borrowed borrowed stories, Jesus creating birds um, 
and then Jesus, even the eternal word in, in Islam. Thank you. Absolutely. And all those titles, which don't make sense. If he's supposed to be just a prophet and the Quran say we make no distinction between them. Now, all of those all of those kind of pieces. And of course, yeah, thank you. Um, I mentioned the clay birds, which is, uh, you know, again, I mean, that's a whole other issue in Islam. But again, shows us the Quran's tendency to borrow things from all over the place because that story comes from the infancy gospel of Thomas. dates around sort of 200 AD, something like that. Probably come via the Arabic gospel of the infancy in the 5th kind of century. And again, it's a sort of Christian fairy tale. Um, you know, Christians, uh, you know, a bit like Muslims did in their first few centuries, began telling pious stories you know, to kind of encourage one another and intrigue one another. And there were lots told about the infancy period of Jesus because the Gospels have a gap there. You know, the Gospels tell us about his birth, but they don't tell us about his childhood. And so that's where a lot of the, the kind of sort of more sort of pious fairy tale type stuff was being told. And lo and behold, the Quran picks this, uh, picks this stuff up. That's true. I mean, there is like a queer, uh, a clear sort of qualitative difference, isn't there, between Jesus and the other prophets? It's kind of like you said, there's, it's never really engaged with or or answered, is it? It's just sort of it's sort of there, it's sort of blindingly obvious, but is is, is seen to yeah seems to be ignored. He, sort of, <laughs> he sort of borrowed and dropped in and undigested, and again back to you know Mark Mark Dury's kind of link book, you know, using that linguistic model. On the Quran, it's a classic example of of borrowing. Just as the English word juggernaut doesn't really fit English, it doesn't fit any of the rules of English kind of grammar. It doesn't. It does. It, it stands out. Reason being, it's been borrowed, sort of more or less lock, stock, and barrel uh, from Sanskrit uh, and, and Hindi, and kind of jammed into English when the you know when when sort of you know Brits and India borrowed it and found it a helpful term. And you know, is, you know, you look at it and go, it stands out. It doesn't. Fit. It's not an English word. It hasn't come the way that most words in English have come. And you see the same in the Quran. Jesus stands out. He's been borrowed. He doesn't fit. And even though, you know, the author of the Quran, like my four-year-old son, pounding on a jigsaw piece, has desperately banged away and tried to make Jesus fit Islamic theology, he doesn't. And, um, you know, the Quranic reader is left with far more questions than answers, which I say to Muslim friends, if you want those answers, you need to read the Gospels because there Jesus makes, makes sense and he fits. Yeah. So... What's the stop of sort of Muslim actually saying that, uh, you know, about Jesus, that that um, it actually provides a truer, more accurate, more recent uh, revelation of, of, of what who, of who Jesus is, rather than I imagine that's the sort of only thing you can the only option sort of left for you, isn't it? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, if you can as a Muslim try and go that that, that route. The problem you still end up with a problem you still end up with going well okay if it's a more recent revelation you've still produced this figure in jesus who just doesn't fit um you know so you know if the quran has come you know from from heaven directly from god what what was god doing at that moment when that stuff was was revealed it's sort of you know was he having a distracted moment for some reason because it it just doesn't it just doesn't where well, doesn't fit the quranic story doesn't fit quranic theology um, you know, in one sense, if you take Jesus out of the Quran and, and remove all the passages where he's mentioned, you get a much more harmonious view of Quranic, Quranic prophetology. So, again, Jesus looks like, you know, he, you know, the, the Quranic sort of uh, in the early composition process of the Quran, he was borrowed in with everything else. But again, he just couldn't he wasn't digestible. And he kind of broke the system. I just think that's just such a beautiful metaphor, actually, because I think Jesus is indigestible. I can't I don't think you can cut Jesus um down to size he won't he won't let you in the things that he did the things that he said and even though the quran tries desperately it fails but then of course so this is perhaps a conversation you know for for, for another time because it opens up a much bigger kind of area discussion then of course we just get into the question of going okay well if you're going to claim if a muslim is going to claim the quran is more recent kind of revelation then we need to look into that does its claims to be a revelation you know stand up and a lot of the more recent work that's been done on how the quran's come together that was kind of my PhD Mark Dury, whose book I've waved a couple of times in the show already. You know, Mark's taken my work and others and developed it further, and others have uh, have still. I mean, you've got things like you know Gabriel Side Reynolds' his massive book, you know, the Quran and the Bible, which is you know you see how thick wow. the puppy is and how many post notes are on that one. Um, and that's just a really good, uh, pretty much authoritative study of everything the Quran has drawn in from christianity and judaism and, and gabriel is at gabriel gabriel side reynolds is at notre dame university probably one of the western world's leading quran scholars and his expertise is on you know, how the quran used um the former traditions and you look at all of that and go it becomes harder and harder to see this thing as falling direct 
uh, from heaven. And it's interesting that the Clay Birds piece that we just mentioned, um, you know, there's a, there's a gentleman called Shabir Ali, who's one of the Muslim world's most kind of well-known apologists in some ways, based in Canada. And when I was in Toronto, Shabir and I dialogued and debated several times. A really nice gentleman. But he's also a, a fine, pretty fine scholar in some ways. And um, I think he is interesting because he, in public debates now, has admitted that the Quran contains legends and fairy tales. And Shabir's way to try and deal with this is to say, well, the Quran retells them as teaching examples. You know, in the same way, you know, in a sermon, you might say, well, think about the story of Cinderella and the glass slipper, and we might learn a moral lesson from this. And so the Quran is sort of saying, well, you consider the story of Jesus and the clay birds, but it's not claiming it's historical. That's a massive admission that Shabir mm-hmm. has publicly made of, of realizing he can't get around the fact the Quran has borrowed this material and tries to deal with it by the kind of, you know, teaching metaphor idea. And the problem he runs into is that the Quran gives you no contextual clues. The Quran doesn't say, here's a nice story. The Quran mm-hmm. introduces all of this material, usually with the same formula in Arabic, where it sort of says, you know, remember when, or consider the story of. Remember when is the most common uh, thing. And and it does that for the, for the Claybird stuff, the same as it does for the other stuff. So the poor reader of the Quran, unless they're a critical scholar, has no way of knowing, well, this is legends, and this is history, and, and so forth. It rather looks if the author of the Quran didn't know. That's the most logical conclusion, because all this stuff is jumbled up, uh, you know, together. Um, yeah, it's, and not, just, it's not an exegetical view, is it? You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't read the Quran and draw that from uh, from reading no. the Quran, would you? It's not, uh, it's definitely not self, far from no. self-evident. Exactly. And if my if my eight-year-old daughter was to come to me and say, hey, Daddy, I've written a little historical essay because she loves writing and I read it. And she talks about, you know, Elizabeth I and Henry VIII. And then she suddenly talks about, you know, Cinderella on the next page. I'm going to have to gently say to her, honey, this is a great piece of work, but you just need to know that the first two are historical figures, a queen and a king of England. The other is a, is a fairy tale kind of character. And it's perfectly okay to know to write about those things but just just make sure in your mind and for your reader you don't confuse people by jamming together you know uh, queen elizabeth the first henry the eighth and and cinderella that's sort of what the crown's done it's it's jammed these things together and not help the reader at all and that's obviously the obvious conclusion is the author of the quran didn't know the difference well, that's that's a huge huge conclusion um aware of the time just as we've only got an hour with you andy but we've got some we've got questions left and make it count we're going to make them count. So we've got, we've got a couple of questions. We've, we've got one uh, lined up. It's a little bit of a multi-part uh, one. So okay, focusing yeah. on uh, Romans one twenty uh, for since the creation of the world, yeah. God's invisible qualities, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, uh, being understood from what has been made. What do you believe about people who recognize yeah. there is a creator? And it kind of goes back to the question about inclusivism uh, and desire to worship yeah. that creator. What, what other concepts do they need to understand? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So thank you um, for asking that. And I think you're right. Romans points out that you know there's quite a lot God's put into to creation uh, that you know you can work a fair amount out. And also for those of us, of course, who love you know philosophy and, and apologetics. It's interesting. Before coming onto the this show this evening, I was doing um, you know this, this discussion group at a, at a at a university where a few weeks ago I'd done the events week, and so we had tonight some non-Christian friends and a few members of the CU there. You know, we were discussing together. I was answering a few questions, and there was a question one of the atheists actually in that group asked about you know why I'm a Christian and what the evidence is, and I started talking about the things that you know evidence from creation, things like cosmological arguments, um, all of this kind of stuff, I think actually gives you a God who's a creator, a God who's powerful. You can get all of those things, but it only gets you so far. And of course, Romans only gets you so far. It sort of says there's enough there in for creation for human beings to kind of figure out if they're reflective, that there is a God, and there's a God before probably here we stand, you know, with some pretty good questions to ask about our conduct, actually. But Romans doesn't go the whole way and go, by the way, they could work out who Jesus is and, and everything else. So Paul doesn't mm-hmm. make that argument. Um and so I think what Paul is doing in the context of Romans is saying there's enough argument evidence there for us to realize that actually we have to hold account for our lives um, and respond accordingly. But we do need more than that. We, do, we just know we need the revelation from nature, but we also need the revelation of, of Scripture and of God in Christ as well. And so I think that's where I'd sort of edge that saying, look, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, you know, that Muslims don't believe in a God who's a creator or any of those things. I'm simply saying that what they've done is they've taken those basic things 
and then they built on top of them because the Quran does, but the Quran doesn't just say God is a creator. The Quran says a whole range of things about Allah, about God. Um, but the model that builds on top of there, you know, is is considerably different from what the Bible builds and what Christians believe. And I suppose, you know, building off Romans one twenty, you know, in the same way we have concerns to somebody who says, yeah, I, I figured out from looking at the majesty of the mountains and the starry skies above, so forth. yeah there is a there is a god behind uh, behind the universe um but i think that god is my cat um we have some questions we wouldn't go yeah that's enough i think there's the, i think we might go okay good 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 you've figured out as a god great that you think your cat is that god i think we need to have a conversation um and i think that also shows of course through the history of human history you know spirituality has been everywhere human beings have pretty much universally through time and space and history and different cultures you know religion has been pretty universal because i think wired into it and it's wired into creation you know atheists are a are a, are a sort of you know interesting blip historically an interesting blip but an interesting but a blip nonetheless <laughs> um and i think romans leads us leads us leads us that way so i guess that's how i'd begin i'd begin yeah. answering it you know let's not claim too much but let's not claim too little either yeah that's helpful uh, there's another question here from uh, Dean London Theist. If Muslims believe Muhammad to be the greatest of all the prophets, why do they believe Jesus was sinless, virgin born, etc.? In what way is Muhammad greater? Oh, wow. Well, there's a, there's a whole range of things packed into that absolutely brilliant question. So thank you for, for asking that. Um, yeah, well, the first thing is, let's talk about the greatest thing is interesting, because on the one hand, there's a sort of tension in Islam. The Quran does say that there is no distinction between the various prophets that God has sent through history. And Muhammad, according to the Quran, is the end of the line of prophets, you know, beginning with Adam and going right the way down through history and with Muhammad. And there's no distinction between them. On the other hand, most Muslims, I think, practically consider muhammad to be the greatest they believe he brought the final revelation either quran i believe he was the last of that prophetic line they believe that all the other prophets were perhaps for their time and place and people muhammad was universal but then interestingly when you get into the hadith you know in the centuries after uh, the death of muhammad and the, and the closing of the uh the, the chronic period to go you can find plenty of traditions there in the hadith that do really start digging Muhammad up you know you've got the whole night journey tradition where Muhammad you know fly, goes on a kind of you know flying donkey um from Mecca down there to Jerusalem and uh, you know sends up through the heavens and ends up talking to God himself up in heaven briefly um and uh, you know definitely that story one thing that story is designed to do is to make Muhammad elevated above the prophets who are met in the lower heavens and I think Jesus is there and Abraham and Moses and so forth and then lots of traditions develop um you know around muhammad and his power and uh things associated with him and so i think what's interesting is i think islam struggles to keep muhammad in his box funny enough because there's that sense that gosh jesus is big so we need to make muhammad bigger um but the standard answer i think the most orthodox answer to your question would be they would say he's the greatest because he brought the final revelation he was the last one of the prophetic line but of course the slight cheeky response there is to go well He's not technically the last of the prophetic line because, of course, Jesus is coming back, um, according to Islamic tradition. The Quran hints that, very strongly hints that, and early Islamic uh, theology developed that idea, of the idea of Muhammad, uh, Jesus coming back in that climactic battle against the Antichrist at the end of, the end of time. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very interesting question. One last thing, actually, I'm rambling slightly because I'm tired of my brain's going. The other thing no. you can ask, it's a great question to ask Muslims, the question you can ask them is in what way in islam is jesus great because muslims want to say that jesus is great but say if you just have the quran if you don't read the gospels jesus turns up does all these amazing miracles so impresses people that his disciples all think that he's god and start worshiping him the early church begins and now you know two billion christians they worship him because of the way he behaves oh and to compound things he gets himself arrested uh and uh, and the romans want to execute him so allah has to do some mysterious miracle which the quran alludes to in surah 4 157 by which he wasn't crucified but he was crucified everybody thought he was then they all get confused think he's risen from the dead and he just the the quranic jesus just causes total confusion um i say to muslims how is he great It'd be better if he never come if he never come nobody would worship him everybody would presumably be muslims because all the other land of prophets would carry on up to up to muhammad jesus was a total disaster islamic jesus hmm um you know what good he possibly do he's like he's an incompetent buffoon um the yeah. quran of the jesus of the quran in some ways but the jesus of the gospels very different that's a really interesting point that i've never 
asking them to sort of take that all the way through with what Jesus has done is a really interesting way to deal with it. I think just even the word sinless, I've been finding in my conversations with a Muslim friend is um, looking at the Old Testament prophets, for example, the Bible paints them as very human. Yeah. Uh, they struggle with all sorts of different things. They sin. I mean, they so uh, Muslims are very clear that David is a prophet. Um, and I asked uh, the other day, actually, so, so uh, David, clearly sinned when he committed adultery and he's like no that could never happen there's never never okay. could happen and and so you're like but hold on so you you want to hold on to these prophets but you don't believe any of the stories about them where they've come out as clearly human uh are they perfect and then they say no they're not perfect but they're not sinful <laughs> they would never commit no. adultery so there's a real confusion i've not unpicked yeah. it yet uh, around sin yeah. even the phrase sin is is very different oh gee phil i mean ago i think you're on something very, very important actually i remember first being put on to this by a friend of mine who um who did a lot of work in pakistan and uh, one of his methods of evangelism i mean that he was he was using at the time i don't know if he's, he's still doing it but um when he was in, in pakistan he would uh, he would he would say he would wander into a tea house and sort of sit down and he said after a while sitting down someone would come and join him and my friend would always go you know because we pakistan is not like we're not like you brits we're sociable we talk to strangers and he said you know you'd sit down and in typical kind of middle eastern where, you know, a conversation would begin and people would you know stories of families and where you're from and everything. But my friend would say what he would do is after about an hour of the conversation and getting to know his new friend, he would lean across the table suddenly and go, the problem with you, my friend, the problem with you is you're a sinner. That's your problem. And he said, usually what would happen is the person he was talking to would get really irate. They go, what do you mean? How dare you? How dare you say I'm a sinner? I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. And then my friend would say what he would do is then after a little round of this, he would say, oh, my word, I have, I have met, uh, I have met a Muslim who is even more holy than Muhammad, the prophet himself, because Muhammad didn't. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. And then my friend would open up the Hadith and, you know, there are plenty of examples of Muhammad, you know, talking about his sin, praying for prayers of repentance and, and so on. And finally, you know, usually what happened is his friend would say, well, okay, then all right, maybe I'm, maybe I am a sinner. Sorry, a bit loud. I didn't hear that. Okay. Maybe I'm a sinner. Yes. Allahu Akbar, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, Muhammad, he's a sinner, as we've just seen from the Hadith, so we're all got this problem. Now, what we need, what we need, my friend, we need somebody who is sinless. Can you think of anybody from the prophetic tradition, from the Quran, who's, and basically what he wants them to do, and he plays it beautifully, is he wants them to go, Isa, yes, oh, you're right, yes, he, he was sinless, you know, and if we're all stuck in this quagmire, sinking in the quicksand, we need somebody who's outside it, who can give us the arm, who can pull, give us the rope, who can pull us out. And according to, according to Islam, as you have said, that is, that is, uh, that is uh, Isa. Maybe we should take a look at the Injil where his story is told, and then you're in Bible study. So he would do that. He would do, and he led people to many people's faith in Pakistan off that narrative, beginning with sin, you know, pushing them on their sinfulness, getting them defensive, showing them that Muhammad and all the other prophets had this problem of sin, and then only Jesus uniquely um which raises all kinds of questions and i think sin's a good place to begin with anybody because let's be honest i think the gospel story is until we appreciate we are sinners in need of grace we're going to get stuck and again yeah. that's another big point we haven't got time to cover really in the book yeah, yeah. those those four worldview questions i go into the solution is so different islam offers advice islam will offer you good advice you know you're a bit forgetful phil you know dan you kind of mess things up here's some more moral commands you know keep a few more of these you can do better it's a self-help program is really what Islam offers you. Christianity offers you not self-help, but salvation. Christianity mm. says, no, you can't help yourself. You really, really can't. It's massively more serious than that. However bad you think the problem is, it is infinitely worse. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God has done something about it. He hasn't just sat there in heaven and tossed you a new rule book and gone, keep a few of those, you'll be all right. But he's gone, okay, let me actually, actually help you. And that, again, is a sign that I think it's a very different God we're dealing about, a God who's like remote and willing to give a few bits of moral advice or a God who's willing to actually step into history and put a rescue plan into effect that has him his own life at the heart of it. Amen. Oh, I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you, Andy. There's there's so much in that just to take away from that as a reminder of the good news of the gospel. And uh, thank you so much for your time. We're, we're past 9.30, so I, I realise you've had a busy evening. Uh, Slammer, and thank you for sharing Andy's book in the uh, chat. 
I hope people can uh, click on that link, uh, buy the book. Uh, Andy's holding it up there. Um, do hold, hold it one more time. Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Uh, make sure you get the book, read it. I'm sure it'll bless you and uh, lots of good stuff in there. Dan, any final words? I was going to say quickly, is it the sort of book you would give, would you, is this, who's the target audience? Is it Christians mm. or is this is a book yeah. you would give to Muslims as well? This is a, oh, that's a brilliant, brilliant question. And uh, there's actually three audiences very quickly. So firstly, I'd say the first audience are Christians. So I'd say it's a great book to read, to understand your own faith better, to understand the issues and also understand Islam because to go, you know, we go into the Quran in some detail, hopefully very accessible, but for, for Christians, it'd be great to think that through. Second audience would be would be Muslims. But I also realise that most Muslims are not going to probably pick up a book written by a Christian just off the bat. So it's a great gift for Muslim friends. I recommend for a Christian, if you've got a Muslim friend, get hold of the book, uh, have a read. And if you think it's appropriate for your Muslim friend, because always need to read it first. Don't just give it willy nilly. Read it yourself and then and pass it on and use it as a discussion starter. You know, I'd say to your Muslim friend, you might not agree with everything. But I hope you might be finding it interesting. And then maybe afterwards we can sit down for a coffee or if, you know, we're still in COVID restrictions, go for a socially distanced walk or something and talk about it. And the third audience, I would say, are our secular friends. You know, I meet so many people who are sort of interested in spirituality and are in this kind of all religions are essentially the same box. And the book is also ideal for that. I think anybody who thinks that all religions are essentially the same, that you can pick and choose. It's a great book to give to to go. Have a look at this. Because Andy doesn't cover all religions, but he does cover two of the world's biggest religions, and uh, you know, and it's great because you know, the, one of the cover endorsements is Tom Holland, who's mm, not a Christian. I like that, and I, and, I, and I love Tom's endorsement. Bless him. He says, you know, I, I, he says it's a you know an overtly Christian perspective. It's of how to negotiate a truth that is no less self-evident for being one that many prefer to draw a veil across. Christianity and Islam are not remotely the same, and I think it's important. There are lots of people. I think it's important to think. Uh, about that so people are kind of you know, thinking through spirituality um but haven't yet you know realized that actually there are some choices to be made and that is such a strong endorsement given that tom's written mm -hmm. very extensively on both islam and christianity so yeah well done for getting that endorsement in um and any final comments that you encourage our listeners uh to do when engaging with yeah, yeah. Well, for the first time Exactly. I think my thank you, um, Phil. I mean, just I think my final word would be to encourage people, you know, for the Christians listening to this, for those of you know all faiths and none, let's just learn to talk together. Because one of the things about the book that I that is very, very important for me in terms of my own journey and uh, I've got a passion for is I think because this tendency to try and jam things together and say it's the same God, origins are the same, is we just stop listening to each other. Because if Muslims believe the same as Christians, we don't need to listen to Muslims because they believe the same as us. And if all religions are essentially the same, we can stick our fingers in our ears and ignore our Hindu and Buddhist friends or our secular friends because everyone's the same. If there are differences, oh, man, now we need to listen to each other. And I think there's been so much, you know, he uh, heat rather than light generated in a lot of interreligious and debates with Christians and atheists because people haven't listened so I would say to people listening to this, if you're a Christian, you know, search out a Muslim friend, an atheist friend, and try and find an opportunity for a conversation, not a shouty argument. You know, be a robust conversation, but a conversation. And again, if you're Muslim or atheist or something listening to this, you know, don't pigeonhole people who believe differently to you. Take the opportunity to listen uh, and engage well. You know, it's perfectly okay to disagree, but let's disagree in a way that's robust, in a way that takes the other person's beliefs seriously. And ultimately, that's one of my, 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 my top big takeaways in the book, I think, that Islam is radically different to Christianity. And that's OK. Don't be don't be afraid of that. Mm. Um, let Islam be Islam. Let Christianity be Christianity. And let's learn to talk together as we try and work out what's what's true. Well, yeah. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for your time. Uh, I'll just close things off. And uh, but it's been such a pleasure to talk to you again and uh, appreciate it's been a long day for you, so thanks for giving up your time. Well, it's always great to, to hang out with you, with you folks, <laughs> even with Dan wearing that shirt. I mean, I know. I, I will, it's pretty, it I is pretty about that shirt. I can see it like a kaleidoscope when I close my eyes. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> kind of, yeah, it's like when you've looked at the Pine, sun. Pineapple long. and papaya. Pineapple and papaya. And some bananas cool. as well. Papaya. It is, yes, it's yeah. brave. Oh, we, we've had multiple it's comments. Brave. I like that. Shirt. Brave. Brave is the, that's a good <laughs> word, isn't it? <laughs> 
yeah. Um, anyway, so <laughs> we're going to finish up here. So uh, thank you for watching. And uh, I think this this is one of the, the shortest shows we've had. But Andy, it's been so good. There's been so much packed into it that uh, I'll be, yeah. Full of substance. Yeah, good amount of sustenance. Uh, so we're sub sustenance, substance. substance. So that's what I meant. Substance. <laughs> um, so yeah, buy his book. We're going to finish this off before I start. Uh, yeah, missing other words, and we're we're going to uh, just thank our patrons who have allowed us to or enabled us to upgrade our streamyard account, so we can now. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry about Dan's shirt. You can watch that in HD these days now. And uh, we've just, yeah, we've not got too many patrons, but we're just very grateful for them. And uh, thanks for those of you in the chat. Thank you for the questions. If you'd like to support us in any way, the biggest ways are, well, pray for us. Uh, we, we, we enjoy people praying for us. Uh, share the stream, share it around. Hopefully you find it helpful. Give us feedback in the comments. And if you want to support us financially, that's great. Um, but we do this anyway, so we're having a lot of fun. So thank you again, and have a very good rest of your night, wherever you are. See you later. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, please do give us a subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback get in touch let us know what you think if you really enjoyed the content and want to support it find us on patreon.com <laughs>